And now, if you would please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 24, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. Some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. My hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared... This day how you have dealt with me, dealt well with me, 
in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we come to you this morning, for you alone have the words of life. Lord, we ask that you would bless us by your word, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word would take root among us, that it would change us, and that we would be made more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. It is the stuff of legends. It happens in virtually every family. You're traveling from one point to another, perhaps on a long trip, and someone says, wait, I know a shortcut. Now, if this has happened more than once in your family, usually the response to that statement is a series of groans. Because far too often... A shortcut becomes a long cut, doesn't it? We go to a place we think will get us there quicker, and then we become lost. We don't know where we are. We've gone off the way. And so, the shortcut turns out to have been a big mistake. Well, these things happen not just in vehicles. We are faced all the time with the temptation to take shortcuts in our lives. To try to cut a few corners, shave a few inches off, forget about certain passages of the Bible, not follow certain things the Lord has said, because we believe we'll end up in the spot where we should, just quicker and easier. Well, this morning, we're going to see David faced with a shortcut. And as we study 1 Samuel 24, we will see what happens when David refuses to fall to the temptation of the shortcut, but instead stands on the word of God. And in this story, we will see hope for us in our life as we stand on the word of God. And so this morning, I'd like us to see three things from this chapter. First, the test of the shortcut, the test that comes to David. Second, the trust in the Lord that David has. And third, the testimony to the Lord's faithfulness that we see in this incident. The test of the shortcut, trust in the Lord and a testimony to the Lord's faithfulness. Let's begin by looking at David and his situation 
and the test that comes to him. It comes to him in the form of a surprising opportunity. Now, one of the things that's very interesting about the Bible is that we can learn about what the Bible wants us to focus on as much by what it does not tell us as by what it does. And the Bible wants us to focus here on David and his heart and Saul and his heart. Now, how do we know this? Well, it's been a few weeks intervening, but you remember when we were in 1 Samuel 23, David was on the run from Saul. Saul was closing in, and at the very last second, the Philistines attacked. And it was such an attack that Saul had to leave off from pursuing David and go fight the Philistines. So what we would expect is chapter 24 would open up with an account of the battle with the Philistines, right? It's a pretty important event. We expect this chapter to open up with telling us what's going on in Israel. But the interesting thing is, is that without even a breath, our book moves right past that to Saul pursuing David again. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, that's all we hear. What happened? Who won the battle? How was it won? Had the Philistines escaped? The Bible tells us not to worry about that, but to stay focused on the heart of David. And so without a breath, we come right back, Saul pursuing David again. And here it is once again. How many times have you heard me come up here and talk about Saul going after David? Repeated over and over and over again. Why does the Bible keep repeating this? Why couldn't it summarize this and tell us about the Philistines battle? It's because the Bible is going for our hearts. You see, the repetition here of Saul's actions before our eyes serves a purpose. Over and over again, we are shown Saul's heart. But even more than that, we see a heart that is far from God. And there is no rationality to it, no reasoning with it. Saul doesn't learn anything from these incidents over and over and over again. Now this is ironic, because in our society, in our day and age, people will tell you that the only way to be rational... The only way to be reasonable, the only way to be learned, is to forget about God. Is to throw that Bible away. Is to get as far from God as you can. That's the place of rationality and reason and learning. And here we see the heart of one who is far from God has no rationality at all. Saul is merely driven by his own desires and sin. And Saul comes after David again. Now David is at En Gedi. In your mind's eye, if you can picture the Dead Sea in Palestine, En Gedi is an oasis on the western bank of the Dead Sea. It was a place where there was a natural, clean, pure spring that came up all the time. And so it was a place where herdsmen took their animals, and kept them in pens, stayed in the caves, 
It was a good place to be. And now Saul comes after David with 3,000 of his best men. You may remember David had about 600 men with him. And so that tells us the quick math that Saul has David outnumbered 5 to 1 with crack troops. All of this seems typical of what we've been seeing until we get one detail in the Bible. It's a detail we're not used to seeing. Here the Bible gets a bit earthy. We're told that Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself. This is the kind of detail that every boy between the ages of about 7 and 11 loves to read about. See, Mom, it's in the Bible. So that he can go and tell potty jokes all day long. Boys, don't tell your mom potty jokes. But there is this detail. Why is this? Why are we told that Saul needs to relieve himself? What, why this detail? Well, there's two reasons. The first is, is that in the scripture, in order for the camp of the army to be clean, it was necessary to relieve yourself outside the camp. So Saul must go away from his soldiers. And the second thing we know about going to the bathroom, all of us know this, what do you need when you go to the bathroom? Privacy. So Saul doesn't say, and no men ever do this, hey Bob, could you and Joe come with me to the men's room? No man has ever said those words in his life. (laughs) Ever. We want privacy. And so this is absolutely essential to where we are because it tells us how Saul is in a place where he is by himself, vulnerable, and has none of his army with him. It's an essential detail the Bible wants us to know. And it just so happens, of all the caves, in all the oases, of all the places in Israel... Saul happens to pick as his bathroom the cave where David and his men are. David and his men can't believe their luck. This is what they've been waiting for the whole time. And they turn to David in verse 4 and they say this. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Go ahead, David. Now's the time. Now let's stand back for just a second. Do any of you remember God saying that to David? I don't. I don't think they meant it in that way, like it was a prophecy. I think what they're saying to David is, David, look, it does not take a seminary degree to see that God's at work here. What are the odds that we're in this cave and Saul comes in by himself? Go kill him right now. Then you could be the king. We could stop running. Everything will be taken care of. It's the perfect opportunity. And what we expect is for it all to end at this point. Because after all, if the roles were reversed, we know exactly what Saul would do. Right? Isn't it obvious 
what God wants from providence. And so David sneaks off. But what does David do? Something odd happens. All of us expect to hear or to read that David kills Saul and takes the kingship and the kingdom. But instead, he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, what is he doing? Why is David losing his chance for victory? But then there's something even odder that we see. David's heart strikes him because he tore the robe. Look at verse 5. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Why does David's heart strike him for even doing that? Well, I think it's because there's symbolism involved in what David is doing. This is not some kind of tailoring job. What David is doing here is making a statement. Do you remember back in 1 Samuel 15 when Samuel and Saul were in an argument and Saul's robe was torn and Samuel said to him, just as your robe has been torn, so the kingdom is torn from you. Don't think David doesn't know about that. What David is saying here is that he has a claim to the kingdom. He's making it clear to Saul his claim to the kingdom. But we come back to the question, why is David doing this? Obviously, Providence is telling him that the right thing to do is to kill Saul. But you see, the lesson for us from David is what we see in his actions and what we see in his remorse are the principles that David lives by. David is not living by providence. He lives by God's word. And that is the Lord's direction to you as well. It is very tempting to live by providence to see something fall in our lap, or to see something that we think will succeed, and we're sure God is in it, because that's what we expect. You you know may have played this game as a kid. You say things like, okay, I'm going to turn on the television, and if it's on an odd channel, then that means I should go and do this. And if it's on an even channel, I'm going to go and do that. Or you make up some silly, random event and you say, my actions will be cast by this event. Don't let providence be your Bible. The Bible is your Bible. You see, David is telling his men that he cannot strike at the Lord's anointed. Now, their obvious response would be, what do you mean? Saul's a rotten man. He murdered all those priests at Nob. He's been chasing us all over creation. What do you mean Saul is the Lord's anointed? And we have some sympathy, I think, with David's men, don't we? Think about all of your favorite action stories. Don't they all go something like this? The hero 
is unjustly hurt or deprived. And then he comes back with a vengeance to set things right and to make justice known. If you don't believe me, use this afternoon and watch any Clint Eastwood movie. Doesn't matter what his name is or if he has no name. That's every movie. There's injustice in the world and he sets it right. That's what we expect. That's what we want. It's because we wish we could set things right. It's because we long for justice. It's that we see so many things out in the world that need fixing. And we wonder why God isn't fixing them. And so we take it upon ourselves to take a shortcut and to fix them for God. Now, beloved, this applies not only to things in the world. This applies in your own lives as well. We want to be vindicated, don't we? When someone wrongs us, when something happens to us that we can't quite explain when we want our lives to be set on the right course. We want to take things into our hands and force things to be right. But David shows us when he stops himself. He realizes that even Saul is the Lord's anointed. He has been set apart to God. That meant that he was different and to attack Saul would be to attack the Lord himself. And David realizes that it belongs to the Lord to set things right, not him. He could have taken the shortcut, but he chose to follow the Lord. This brings us to the second thing that we see in our text this morning. We see that David is able to do this because of the trust he has in the Lord. David has a confidence in God and in God's justice because David could not give up acting if he didn't believe in his heart that God was sovereign and that God was just and that God would bring about justice. Now, David's men are obviously upset here. You could just imagine the conversation. Why did you blow your chance? Do you know how much easier it would be for us if you would have killed him? Because they are judging the situation by their circumstances. Not by what God has said in his word. And David is very firm in his trust in the Lord. He has supreme confidence. And we see this from the way he speaks to them in verse 7. So David persuaded his men with these words. Now, here the English hides something from us. When you read that, you think of David saying something like, Now, now, calm down. Everything's going to be okay. Let me explain to you why I took the course of action that I took. When actually the Hebrew verb here for persuaded is also in other places translated tore apart. So David gets hot under the collar. He tells him to sit down and shut up. He tells them, I'm following God's word. He tells them, I am not going to sin here to make our lives easier. David is very strong here. He tears them apart, verbally. 
David then goes and confronts Saul. He goes out and he calls to Saul in verse 8. Now remember, Saul is all about himself. He's in this position because he won't listen to God. Over and over again, God has given him direction and instruction that he ignores. And now David shows Saul how a man after God's own heart actually acts. David could have just let Saul ride off into the distance, right? That would have been easier. David wouldn't have had to continue to flee. There's no reason Saul needs to know that David is there. But David is going to be speaking God's truth to Saul, going after Saul's heart. Now, can you imagine what is going through Saul's mind here? He's been by himself. All of a sudden, he hears David's voice. In your mind's eye, you can picture what that looks like. Have you ever come up behind someone when they weren't paying attention at all? You touch them on the shoulder and they almost hit the roof? That's what's going through Saul's mind right now. What? David? And then he turns around and he sees David paying him homage. On his face, bowing down before Saul. And David then begins to draw the connections that Saul should make from this incident. He says, Providence has given you to me. And the voice of opportunism, everyone around me said, take him, kill him. But David tells him he restrained himself, not because of fear, not even because of loyalty, but because of obedience to God. And so mighty Saul then looks down on his robe and he sees that all of this is true. And David uses this as a proof to show Saul that he has been wrong about David all along. Look at verse 11. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. Now this should convince Saul and end the matter. How could you possibly think David's trying to kill you when he didn't kill you when he had the chance? But we all know it won't change Saul's mind. Because Saul's mind is still driven by a heart that is far from God. And David places his trust in the Lord here. David knows that there will be justice. Look at verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand will not be against you. Justice does not depend on David. It depends on the Lord. And what this means is David is freed. He is freed to trust God. To trust God with ultimate things. To know that God is sovereign. Now this is very different than trusting circumstances. It's not as if David stays at En Gedi at the end of the chapter. Do you notice that? David goes to the stronghold. He's not going to trust circumstances. He's not going to trust Saul. But ultimately, he'll trust the Lord. David is not going to rely on his wits or on his power. His hope won't waver based on how the circumstances are changing. 
He knows there will be vengeance because God has promised to bring it. The Lord puts it this way in Deuteronomy 32. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. It's what the Apostle Paul understood when he wrote to the church at Rome and to you and to me when he said in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We can trust God and God has reserved for himself vengeance. So what does that mean then for us? It means that our ultimate hope has to be in the Lord. Not in our circumstances, not in what we can do, not in how we can turn the tables. Now, it doesn't mean that we can never act. But what it does mean is that our first action must be prayer and appeal to God. Not trust in ourselves. And as David trusts the Lord and his justice, he begins then to experience the fruit of that trust. The very first thing we see is David avoided the sin that would have colored his entire future. Now imagine if David had killed Saul. Sure, the shortcut would have given him the kingdom without some pain and without some problems. But David would have forever been known as a murderer. He would have been known as one who seized the kingdom by violence. It would have stained his entire reign. He would have gotten there quicker, but not the way that God had determined. You see, David instructed his men in following God. He wanted them to see that he was not like Saul. And the difference is that David obeyed the Lord in all situations. Another fruit that came from David's trust is that he was enabled to be a peacemaker. After all that Saul had done, do you see David approach him as a faithful subject? You see, the great temptation that David would have would be to pursue the hostility that Saul had pursued against him. How hard is it to respond in kindness to hostility. I don't know about you, but I think one of the hardest verses in the Bible to obey is repay no one evil for evil. It just comes to us naturally, doesn't it? Who wants to be nice to someone who's been wicked to you? Who wants to be patient with someone who has harmed you? But you see, David shows that followers of the Lord Jesus Christ can be peacemakers. David does everything that he can. He doesn't even blame Saul. Do you see this? He says in verse 9, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, David has betrayed you? 
He doesn't even say, Saul, why do you believe? Why do you say? He's thinking the best of Saul. And David is also able to show the character of a believer, what a believer looks like. You see, in our world, we expect people to repay evil for evil, don't we? We see this even in small ways in our homes. You've seen this with siblings, right, kids? Somebody does something to you, and what's your response? Well, I'm going to get you back. I'm not going to tell you when I'm going to get you back. because I'm going to make you worry about how long it is until I get you back. But be sure, I'm going to get you back, right? And then your sibling walks around all the time like this. What was it? Get away from me. I see you over there. Right? This is what happens. We expect this. That's the way of the natural world. Everyone just waits for their chance to pounce. We see it in politics. We see it in life. Everyone waits to repay the evil that they've been given. But for the believer... The believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is directed by God's word. And he lives with integrity and compassion all of the time. It's what makes followers of the Lord Jesus Christ different from those who do not believe. Think about how much of a difference in the world the church on earth would make if it lived like this. Instead of trying to fight fire with fire. Thirdly and finally, we see a testimony to the Lord's faithfulness. And the first that we see is a testimony to the Lord's faithfulness to David. Now, while it's not the ultimate answer, David gets a nearly immediate response. Saul sees him and hears him. And he admits that his actions have been evil. And he admits that David has done good to him. Four times in verses 17 through 19, Saul uses the word good to describe David and his actions. Now, the English translation hides this just a bit. First, we see Saul says, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And then he says, you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me. It's the same word, it means good, but if I said how you dealt good with me, every grammarian in here is going to correct me. But it's the same word. And then he says, for who when he has his enemy, lets him go safely. And the words there in the Hebrew are, lets him go on a good road. And then finally he says, the Lord will bring good to you. Over and over again, Saul is testifying to David's integrity and his compassion. And he says, and I know that you will be the king. Think about how significant this is. Saul admits what Jonathan said was true. Think about what that would mean to David. The comfort that that would bring. 
that not only does he have the promise of God to fall back on, not only does he have his own hopes, but he has Jonathan's assessment, and now even Saul's assessment, that God will make him the king. Now, it doesn't resolve the issue, right? Saul doesn't walk over and hand David the crown and put it on him. But it does give great encouragement to David. Because how could this come from Saul exceptfully, except from the Lord? Finally, there is an application of this principle to us, to you and to me. We are to trust the Lord and not look to our circumstances around us. There are no shortcuts around God's word. God gives us reminders that he is sovereign. And what does that mean? Sovereign's a big word. It means God is in control. Not just of the world, but of our lives also. And I think perhaps the place where we can most clearly see this principle is in the life of Jesus. Because Jesus is fully man. And that means, the Bible tells us, that he was tempted in all ways like we are, except without sin. That means that Jesus was tempted with the shortcut. That means Jesus was treated unjustly and had to trust that the Father would vindicate him. It means that Jesus had to look past circumstances. Now think for a moment here about the temptation in the wilderness. Satan had come and offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. And that would make sense to Jesus because he had been promised by God all of the kingdoms in the world. He knew this was true. The kingdoms were his. But the difference is Satan offered the kingdoms through a shortcut. He offered the crown without the cross. And all Jesus had to do was to deny God's word. All he had to do was to worship Satan. Can you think for a moment about how tempting that would be? To avoid the cross, the suffering and the shame? Now stop for a moment and can you compare that to a temptation you have had to use a shortcut? You see, Jesus knew that he must do God's work God's way. And that applies to us as well. We need to commit ourselves not just to receiving God's blessings, but we need to commit ourselves to receive them from His hand in accordance with His word. That's what the Bible tells us. And you see, this is how we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus in rejecting the temptation of the shortcut, in rejecting the temptation to do things ourselves, and in trusting the Lord our God, looking beyond our circumstances, knowing that God's justice will prevail. Even as it did in the work of Jesus. The crucifixion was not the last word of his work 
was it? No, Jesus was, the scripture tells us, vindicated as the Son of God by being raised from the dead. May we too trust the Lord our God sufficiently and His vindication that we live our lives by His word, hoping in Him alone. Let's pray.